Mental health services are a crucial piece of the healthcare industry, and with a combined increase in demand and decrease in supply for these services, the collective healthcare system is feeling the squeeze. So, how do rural hospitals adapt to best serve patients in need of mental health care? With strategic and close partnerships, frequent advocacy, and an effort to build the provider pipeline. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to episode 129 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. Rachel, I'm excited today. Um, We have the privilege uh, to have here today with us uh, a guest who is passionate about providing mental health services here in Michigan and someone who I've uh, had the privilege and honor to get to know uh, over the course of the last year and our time together on the Michigan Hospital Association Board of Trustees uh, in really just learning a lot about a fellow friend, a man of faith, uh, and someone who is truly passionate about meeting the needs of those uh, patients, especially here in Michigan, um, who are otherwise at times abandoned. And we're going to talk about a a specific general case in which, you know, we shared a common patient. uh, And and it really demonstrates Mark's commitment to providing services to rural communities like Hillsdale, uh, even when his capacity is over capacity. So I'm excited today to to have this conversation with a good friend of mine. That's right. We are talking with someone who is dedicated to providing mental health care services on all levels to all populations. That's right. Today, our guest is Dr. Mark Eastberg. He's the Chief Executive Officer of Pine Rest Christian Mental Health Services. And I want to welcome you for the first time, Dr. Eastberg to uh, Rural Health Rising. Thank you, JJ, and thanks, Rachel. It's great to be here. To start, Mark, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at Pine Rest. Yeah, thank you. So I came to Pine Rest in 1990. I was completing my psychology internship, uh, wrapping up my clinical psychology degree at Fuller Graduate School of Psychology in Pasadena, California. So I moved my family here, two really young kids, did a psychology internship for the year. And and at the end of that year, looked at a lot of different uh, places to work around the country. My wife and I are both from out west. And we just fell in love with Michigan. uh, I just fell in love with Pine Rest as a place to work with its mission, with its commitment to excellence, and uh, accepted a job here out of my internship program in 1990. Uh, first working in an area called psychological assessment or testing, did mm-hmm. that for a few years and had a number of different roles at Pine Rest through the years, but have been the CEO and president for the last 17 years. So that's, I'm a California transplant, uh, <laughs> but uh, happy to be in Michigan where I've raised my family um, for these now 33 years. Oh, that's incredible. Mark, regarding Pine Rest Christian Mental Health Services, can you talk a little bit about, you know, your function, the scope of the services that you provide, maybe a little bit about even your staffing models? Yeah, so Pine Rest is is somewhat unique in that we have a really wide range continuum of care. So when people thought about Pine Rest 50 years ago, they thought about the psychiatric hospital, Pine Rest Hospital. In fact, I was just meeting with somebody earlier today who said, yeah, we sort of grew up here in Grand Rapids, everyone dreading the idea of Pine Rest Hospital. 
Um, but today we're we're much broader than that. It's that full continuum of care, everything from a, an outpatient counseling visit, um, a short-term brief intervention, to longer-term residential treatment care, to substance use disorder, uh, both uh, on an outpatient and inpatient basis, all the way from that really highest acuity inpatient, all ages uh, from age four to 104. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes us a bit unique around the country. Um, most psychiatric organizations focus on one or two areas, and we're unique in that we have the whole continuum of care. And uh, pretty safe to say that you're um, at at many intervals, many times, uh, you're full. And, uh, you know, you, you your mission is carried out. And we're going to talk a little bit about your mission. And when we talk about access, we're going to talk about the the volume that you're seeing. Um, but, you know, obviously the, the work that you're doing isn't just regionalized. And I think that's important to know. You know, you in, a, in an age that we're suffering right now here in Michigan, when uh, the, the governor at the time closed the institutions throughout Michigan, you know, we know, um, Mark, that these patients ended up either going to the emergency rooms or to the jails. Uh, both places are inappropriate. Right. Right. So, yeah, we serve really every county in Michigan. Uh, patients come to us from every county in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you referenced the COVID crisis. Um, that made dramatic changes for us as a behavioral health organization, perhaps a little different from acute care. Mm-hmm. Um, what we saw for that first six to 12 months was a, a real dip in our inpatient census as people, I think, hunkered down and didn't get out much and but uh, lots of activity on the outpatient side using uh, telehealth during that time. And then once the restrictions began to be lifted, we saw really the floodgates open on mm-hmm. our, for all levels of care, inpatient, mm-hmm. outpatient, partial hospitalization at all age, ages, but particularly for, for kids, for children and adolescents. Yeah. Rachel's going to ask you here in just a minute about the makeup of your staff, you know, psychologist, et cetera. But prior to that, you know, we we ask a question on each of our podcast um, of our guest, and it's uh, why. And so uh, this allows an opportunity for us to get to know you a little bit better, but most importantly for our listeners across the country uh, to get to know you a little bit better. So Dr. Mark Eastberg, what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you up in the morning to do the work you do? Yes. So thanks for the question. It it maybe intersects a bit with my journey. So I'm a clinical psychologist by background. I I still do a little bit of clinical work just to keep me honest. But I I think one of the reasons I decided to be a psychotherapist or clinical psychologist was what I saw just informally in the amazing changes that could happen through uh, good listening compassionate uh, presence with people uh, and just being available. And as a psychotherapist, I saw that, you know, with new tools and skills that I acquired in grad school, just the powerful changes that could happen. I like to call Mm -hmm. them healing moments that occur Mm -hmm. in the psychotherapy session. Mm -hmm. And there's really not much, not many things in life that are more deeply rewarding than to see somebody change, a light bulb go on in a therapy session or a decision made where somebody just begins to alter their course of their life a little bit. So like the aircraft carrier 
uh, 10 miles now, they're going in a different direction. Yeah. And as I started out in psychology and therapy training, I saw the amazing potential of scaling that. Mm. So using my interest in administration. Um, so, you know, if I'm a psychotherapist, I can see maybe 30 patients a week. And that's the core of our work. That's the most important thing that we do. As an administrator, I can have an impact on uh, over the year 3,000 people by helping to start a new program or finding resources to give our therapists the tools they need to see more people at, and provide even better care. Mm-hmm. So what gets me up in the morning, really at the center of it, are, the, are these healing moments that yeah. that I can provide not only as a therapist um, to a very small extent now, but to see the, the tens of thousands of healing moments that occur um, if if an organization is in tune with its mission and focused on providing that compassionate, really life-changing care, that's what gets me up in the morning. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that when it comes to your organization and your mission. Um, I know you explained kind of what kind of services you offer and things like that, but structurally, what does your organization look like? Because you guys are doing a lot <laughs> of different things in different areas. And while it might all fit under the mental health umbrella, that doesn't mean that it's all really streamlined and easy to offer that type of, you know, breadth and depth of, of care. Um, But then how does that all tie back to your mission as well? And what do your teams look like? Yeah, well, maybe I'll start with the mission part, first of all, because I think that's what stitches all of this together in its diversity of different services. So a little bit of the history there as well. Pinerus is now 113 years old, and was started by Dutch immigrants in, in Michigan who, who in their community saw their loved ones going to psychiatric hospitals back in you know the turn of the century, 1900, which were pretty much horrendous places to be, ja- yes. like jails or prisons or worse. Mm-hmm. And they also um, were places where Issues of meaning and purpose and value and faith and spirituality were forbidden. And so uh, the the people of West Michigan, the Dutch immigrant community, got together and said, you know, if we're going to be sending our loved ones to a psychiatric hospital, we need to make sure that it's one that reinforces dignity and values and and faith and spirituality for people who want to explore that as part of them, their mental illness and so we need to create a different kind of place. And uh, right at the same time, there was um, a movement afoot around euthanasia for people with mental illness. Yep. So three physicians declared somebody with a mental illness to be a, quote, hopeless case. That person could be euthanized. And so once again, these, mm-hmm. these recent immigrants said, we, mm-hmm. we need to make sure that never happens mm-hmm. yeah. to create an alternative and so, you know, for these early founders, um, these concepts of compassion and, and justice and spirituality and uh, finding meaning and purpose combined with the best of what science could offer at the time, those were core values that were put together and integrated in Pine Rust and, and really with a heart for the community, knowing that that community our friends and our family, our neighbors and the people that we love. So as we open a new program, whether it be 
a program to serve people who are experiencing homelessness in, in Kent County or a program to serve kids coming out of the state psychiatric hospital uh, who have been many cases institutionalized their entire lives. Um, mm. You know, I think one of our guiding principles is what would we want to build for our kids, for our family, for our brothers and sisters and neighbors mm-hmm. and aunts. Mm-hmm. And, and to, to acknowledge that we're not just here to treat symptoms, we're here to help people flourish. And that means off opening the door, giving people space to talk about spirituality and the deeper issues of life that, mm-hmm. that you know, are completely entwined with anxiety and depression and some of the other psychiatric illnesses. So that's a little bit of how the mission ties all the different services and programs together. And mm-hmm. the description of all the programs could take a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wide variety. It is a wide variety. And you have quite a few yeah. campuses. Uh, that was, was going to be my next question. Yeah. How, do, how do you, deli- where do you deliver all of these services? Because if it started, you know, as a as a um, hospital, as one location, I imagine by now you've got some additional space. Yeah. So uh, it started actually a farm was purchased. So uh, about a 350 acre farm, uh, the, the Cutler Farm, if you're familiar with this West Michigan area, uh, we're in Cutlerville. <laughs> and uh, patients came and they worked on the farm. And today that campus is still about 200 acres. Um, and uh, so that's our, we try not to call it our main campus because everywhere a patient is seen as our main campus, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. uh, but that's our Cutlerville campus, obviously the largest. But we have 20 outpatient clinics uh, throughout Michigan. Uh, some of them are on the Cutlerville campus. Uh, we're as far north as Traverse City and as far south as uh, Portage and Kalamazoo, and we're along the lakeshore, the Michigan lakeshore. Um, we have some programs sort of in the neighborhood here uh, for adults with developmental disabilities. So, uh, yeah, we, we're really diverse and spread, and through telehealth, our reach really extends um, all over Michigan now. Sure does. And uh, Mark, the great news that that uh, I'm excited to share with our listeners is the fact that uh, you're actually you have a vision that's been cast for um, a new center uh, that you're launching. I did verify by doing a Google search to make sure that it is public uh, information. I do see that you did release that. So you want to talk to us a little bit about uh, what that is and and who are you going to serve in that capacity? Right. So the short answer is it's a pediatric behavioral health center, and we are going to be serving uh, kids throughout Michigan. So post-pandemic, we saw uh, a real uptick in the need for behavioral health services, as I mentioned, but particularly for kids, for children, for adolescents. Adolescent suicide attempts are, are way up. And this seemed like the moment with the availability of some federal dollars for uh, investment in infrastructure around behavioral health for the need that has never been greater. That's right. And then combine that with, this seems to be the moment where people are opening up about mental health and talking about the mental health needs of kids. And so this seemed like the perfect moment to, to really do something, a once in a generational kind of project and do it, um, linking with our partners at Helen DeVos Children's Hospital, where they are often overwhelmed with uh, behavioral health needs there as well. So uh, 
creating a seamless continuum between Helen DeVos Children's Hospital so that uh, families experience it as one organization, um, but then also projecting these kind of rare, unique, hard-to-find services throughout Michigan um, when telehealth mm -hmm. is possible and also just having our doors open from, from any, any Michigander in any community to yeah. come here when the services require in-person care. It's going to be remarkable, uh, certainly a huge need in the state. As you know, the work MHA has done to help try to identify funding sources and, you know, raise the awareness of this issue of pediatric care uh, mm -hmm. and adolescent care for those that are in need. In many cases, Mark, we both know that those patients, because of a lack of access, you know, are setting in our ERs. We're going to talk about lack of uh, lack of access here in just a minute. But before we do that, you know, you've been in the industry now for well over three decades. Mm -hmm. uh, even though you look like you're in your 20s, uh, you've been <laughs> in the industry for uh, quite a long time. And you've, you, I can tell you, you know, you've seen a lot. Uh, you've had to deal with a lot. You've gone through, mm -hmm. you know, crisis, financial crisis, pandemics, uh, state closures of hospitals. And probably every different uh, predominant every different... payment model that the federal government yep. has gone through in yep. that time period. <laughs> exactly. And so I guess what changes have you seen in the mental health industry in the most recent years? And does that give you pause for concern or are you excited about some of these changes? And I guess ultimately, how have they impacted the care that patients are receiving in Michigan? Yeah. So less recent, but pretty significant to understanding the current context is when I got to Pine Rest in 1990, um, the average length of stay for a child in the hospital was about three months. Mm. And the, the old timers who were working here were saying, what can you do for a kid in three months? I mean, they were used to six months or 12 months because what was what was happening is managed care was coming into into what would had been a kind of a, a fee for service without really management and things were tightening and changes changes were were happening and so in my first three years at Pine Rest that the 30 day length of stay the 60 30 day length of stay for kids went to five days well when that happens in any kind of healthcare environment uh, length of stay changes it it really blows up your your business model. Yeah. You have to really rethink how you're going to one continue to fulfill your mission, but two survive financially. Right. And a lot of psychiatric hospitals organizations went out of business because yes. um, they weren't able to, to flex in, in that. Yeah. And so what that led to was the growth and development of a lot of outpatient services because Obviously, after five days in the hospital, whether you're an adult or a child, you're not done with your recovery. Right. Um, you know, probably like, you know, in generations gone by, um, some, a woman would give birth and maybe stay two weeks in the hospital. Well, you, you just never hear about that now. And, and so what's needed, what is, was needed at that time was a lot more outpatient. And that's where... We pivoted as an organization back in the early 90s and really grew outpatient. Mm -hmm. I, I think ultimately, while some of the people around at the time, uh, you know, really grieved that change because you got to know kids over 12 months uh, or adults over two months, I, I think ultimately it helped kids, kids and adults get back to their jobs faster, their families faster. 
And I think what we've shown is we we're able to manage that course of illness over from inpatient to outpatient to uh, inpatient to partial hospitalization to outpatient. So ultimately, I, I think it's worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 then what that also did was made outpatient more available to prevent hospitalizations before they got to a crisis point. So ultimately, I think that that's the world that we're living in right now at Pine Rest. Uh, a lot of outpatient work, about 350,000 outpatient visits a year. Wow, wow. that's incredible. 200-bed hospital. And I, I think that's the right thing that the community needs. Yeah. Um, but I, I also think, so that's a, been a big change over time, um, and it's encouraged prevention. But the incentives are still financially around inpatient. And I think until we uh, really uh, begin to move some of the financial incentives in the direction of making outpatient care even more available, um, you know, we'll hold ourselves back from helping our community heal, especially now from the pandemic. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm a little curious um, in regards to, you know, you have an incredible mission, but, you know, we're not going to dive too deep into payment reform. But, you know, we talked, you talked a little bit about that just a minute ago. But, you know, obviously the cost of doing business uh, in, in, in this environment for healthcare is very difficult. But in your area, it's even worse. So, you know, my question to you, do you rely on uh, donations, grants, uh, gifts? I mean, because at some, at some point, you know, the, uh, the cost of delivering the service uh, is exceeding what your reimbursement is. And I believe we're all experiencing that right now. And I would assume I'd submit to you that you're experiencing it in mental health services. Right. Oh, that's completely the case, JJ. Well, so this goes back a little bit to our heritage and roots. Some of the, the, the good Dutch reformed uh, conservative financial mindset or, or perspective has been that Pine Rest needs to be sustainable without donations. Okay. And mm-hmm. So our board of directors says we, you need to break even or do a little bit better than break even on operations. Okay. And so we do fundraise. Uh, what we fundraise for is our patient assistance fund. So let's oh. say you have a five thousand dollars deductible, we can help you with that. Sure. Let's say okay. you you run out of your twenty visits allotted for the year, we can help you with to get to fifteen that you need for your complete recovery. So <clears throat> that's a little bit of our background and in history sure. and part of our DNA. But to, to survive and to thrive as an organization, we have to be really, really lean because yeah. um, behavioral health tends to have reimbursement much below acute care. Correct. Yet we're competing for nurses in the same uh, market marketplace. Yeah. Uh, we're competing for physicians. And so we just we have to be uh, really good at at uh, keeping our costs low and maximizing all the reimbursement that we do get. Yeah, which you do a remarkable job at doing. And we here in Hillsdale, rural Hillsdale County, do appreciate the work that you're doing uh, and the fact that uh, you're meeting the needs of this community is just very heartwarming for us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. What would you say right now today? Are, I know we've already probably talked about some of them, but what are some of the biggest challenges that you and your team are facing when it comes to your ability to fulfill your mission and serve your patients? 
Yeah, great question. So uh, like pretty much every organization in Michigan, especially healthcare organizations, uh, staffing is a challenge. Finding uh, the staff that are uh, have the certification to be therapists, to be nurses, to mm -hmm. be, uh, to, you know, we entrust the lives of our patients with even, you know, people who are psychiatric technicians. So, uh, you know, I tell our, I, every week I speak to our, our new employees and I thank them for working. I said, I drove in today. I saw the signs at the fast food places, yeah. the advertising start immediately help wanted. We're honored that you work here because yes. we think you're doing something, you know, you're helping the community heal, especially now from the pandemic. So staffing is a challenge. I know you've experienced the same thing at Hillsdale Absolutely. and it, we're all in this together. And, uh, yeah. you know, we, we need to get, really creative and how do we address the staffing issue. Yeah. Um, I've mentioned reimbursement. That's, that's always a challenge. <laughs> my dad was uh, experienced uh, healthcare kind of minor procedure. He was at a local hospital here for six hours and his bill was uh, $14,000 mm. uh, for that six hours. Well, that probably, that could have paid for an entire uh you know, maybe two weeks stay at Pine mm -hmm. Rest. Yeah. So we'll make it work. Yeah. We do make it work, but it, there's, you know, health, um, behavioral health care often gets uh, kind of what we see is a little bit with leftover. We don't yeah. have a lot of procedures mm -hmm. that we can bill. Right. Very disproportionate. Very disproportionate. Yeah. There's yeah. not a lot so, of parity. No, there isn't. That's right. It's really a parity issue. And sure is. You know, we sort of get the behavioral health system that we're paying for. You know, if there are You're shortages, right. if there are lack of beds, if there are, you know, people backed up in the emergency rooms, we're we're kind of it's kind of the logical consequence of how we valued this as a society, mm -hmm. and nothing speaks louder than what we value and what we are willing to pay. Yeah, absolutely. Can you just say that again? We have the behavioral health system that we pay for. Yeah, we have the behavioral health system that we pay for. Yeah, right? yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. That's, yep. uh, and until we prioritize it at the state and national level, uh, each of the respective states need to take on this uh, task. Right. Uh, and part of it is, as we've talked even with a guest before this, Rachel, about the stigma attached to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mental health services and right. people's And if you can get past that, then can you pay for then it? Then can you pay what for it? What can you afford? Yep. What right. can you afford to find a different therapist if the one you started with right. is not really working or, yeah, you know, right. all, there's so right. much that goes into that, that especially those who are economically more vulnerable mm -hmm. are going to have difficulty accessing the best possible care within the yeah. system that we even have. Right. Right. And then you have to, is it, do you pay rent or do right. you see a therapist? Do you, yep. do you pick uh, up your meds? Do you food on the table bill? for your kids or? Yeah. yeah, it's very true. Very true. Well, Mark, one of the concerning things that is happening across the state and, uh, I'm only going to call it out because it is public information, but uh, Lenawee County and Adrian, Michigan closed their behavioral health unit, uh, impacting care in that entire community, which is nearly double the population here in Hillsdale County of, of and roughly 47,000. it is adjacent 000. to Hillsdale County for yep. those who are not familiar yep. with Very the, adjacent. Uh, the, the county lines in Southern yep. Michigan. Yep, adjacent to Hillsdale. So we would, again, receive some of those patients. But then the news that came out about a month ago, uh, Chelsea Hospital closing uh, their inpatient, you know, psychiatric uh, services. Very concerning. 
uh, as these services are dwindling. So let's get to really the the heart of the matter here. It's called Rural Health Rising for a reason, because <laughs> we got to talk about rural access in right. healthcare. As as you know, we have to look at the mental health care as an important component of healthcare in general. So. Uh, my question for you today is, you know, how can patients in rural communities, and, and put the name in, right, Mark, Hillsdale, Adrian, Jackson, whatever it is, sure. with limited access to local mental health services. So, uh, again, when those communities are are closing their shops and mm-hmm. are divesting their programs, you know, that's a problem. But the other problem is, Mark, that the lack of transportation, uh, the lack of connectivity. Some people scoff at me when I say there are portions of our community that still have no access to Internet and telephone services. True story. In which that there is no uh, telehealth, you know, answer for this problem. So um, with a lack of transportation, you know, how do we get with these closures better access to mental health care need, needs that these patients desperately need? Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, you, I'm sure you think about this every single day with every kind of specialty. So I I don't want to presume to have particular answers for, um, for in your setting or any of the, your listeners setting. Um, What, what we're seeing though, and I'll just put out some hopeful signs is the rise of telehealth in teletherapy and telepsychiatry Mm -hmm. has, has greatly expanded our reach two rural communities. We, we had a program where we were working um, with a particular farming community on the, the middle of the state during COVID. And, um, you know, people who had never had meaningful access to behavioral health services were now, you know, getting family therapy, couples therapy, uh, helping them d- deal with the farming slash COVID issues that were coming up for them. I think telehealth has lots of promise uh, we're, what we're seeing is in the people we serve in those 300, 350,000 visits a year, um, we think it's going to level off about 60% of, of the people we serve are going to say, um, why would I come in? I, I'm going to do teletherapy. I'm going to do telepsychiatry. Why would I come in when I can do this at home instead of driving an hour? Now that doesn't address the needs of people who have no tel- uh, have no wire wire service cell yeah, connection. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I think in that situation, um, rural health centers, rural health communities play a really significant role as potentially being hubs. Mm-hmm. There are some models of telepsychiatry, teletherapy, where you know having the provider at a distant location and then having a local person to help. The person, you know, de- develop the follow-up plan, so it isn't. Uh, it, you, you've got that support around them to make sure the next step mm-hmm. is followed. I, I think rural uh, health centers can be, and hospitals can form a really crucial part in in making sure there's continuity of care, mm-hmm. even if, you know if people need to drive in for those services. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things we ex- experimented with during COVID, just out of sheer necessity, was. Uh, virtual partial hospitalization program. So this partial hospitalization is, was a day program where people come in, they spend the whole day. Never in our wildest dreams would we have thought you could do that virtually. Hmm. But during COVID, you had to. 
And, and so that's a next level of acuity. So I think that could have great potential for people living in rural communities who might be a two and a half hour drive from the nearest partial hospitalization program. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it, it, I could see it happening a group in a community room at a local hospital um, experiencing that care. I, I, I think it would work mm-hmm. really well. These are, you know, kind of models on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, in, in one of your opening statements, JJ, you talked about the importance of partnership. Mm-hmm. Just like we can't do it alone, um, I think creating strong partnerships between rural health hospitals, community health centers, and specialty providers like like psychiatric providers or pediatric providers is going to be a key to making sure rural communities are well cared for. That's right. That's right. But you got to have that partnership. You got to know each other. You got to work well together. Yeah. Uh, you have to trust each other. Yeah. And, and that's why these kind, you know, these kind of friendships you and I yeah. have established that's are right. are so important. You can pick up the phone as yeah. as you did and say, "Hey, we're really stuck here. Can you yeah. help us out?" And you did. And uh, even when you were over capacity, you said, "You know what? Let me let me move some things around." And you took care of a significant need that was having significant impact uh, at our facility, including injury of staff, um, you know, the staff member that ended up uh, having basically a STEMI from from the patient and just a lot of other uh, challenges with this patient. But we were able through your assistance, had we not had that relationship or collaboration, I would be emailing no one. Uh, so, yeah. you know, those are critical right. and I appreciate that, Mark. Yeah. It's what we do. It's, you know, uh, some of our staff is like the more challenging, the, yeah. Um, the, the more, you know, the, they feel great about seeing the changes that can occur and those changes do occur. It's yeah. just, it's nothing short of a miracle sometimes. It's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Speaking of um, providers, we know there's a shortage of providers of all kinds for rural communities in particular, but across the board, we don't have as many advanced practice providers and physicians as we need within behavioral health. So, yeah. From your perspective, how do we fix that? What is the what's the next best step? And then, when those types of providers with that level of specialty are not available in a community, who is the next best person to try and help fill some of that role? Yeah, so that's a great question that you know, we've wrestled with through the years. And so, uh, you know, as you know, people come out of PA programs and they've had general training in a lot of different subjects. Uh, so what we have done is we started a psychiatric physician assistant fellowship program, sort of like mm. a, yeah. And so it's a two-year program where we uh, take someone who's recently graduated from a PA program, or maybe they want to switch fields, go from urology to psychiatry, or you know, mm-hmm. just do something completely different, and uh, walk them through a two-year highly supervised training program that uh, can turn them into uh, psychiatric PAs. And um, we've had some some really outstanding graduates of those programs. So we're starting a child psychiatry PA fellowship right now, in fact, That's just incredible. because of that need. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so I think partnering, you know, um, as those graduates become available, I'm, my hope is that some of them decide to move into rural communities and um, with supervision that they can now arrange virtually in many cases, um, they can serve in rural communities. 
I think, you know, you, the other part of your question, Rich, was, uh, well, what happens if you can't find them at all? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, Gigi and I talked about this recently. There's some other really good models out there, collaborative care models, where, you know, uh, pr- a pediatrician can set aside an hour of her or his time sometime during the week and just have a child psychiatrist on the phone and pick their brain, whether they're going over uh, 12 different kids that they're challenged with or maybe spent going deep on with four. And that can be a great resource to a, a pediatrician who's maybe serving a couple large counties and doesn't have a psychiatrist, you know, uh, that they can call up and talk to, knowing that every week I've got somebody that I can uh, connect with. Those are some those are some models that have a lot of potential for for uh, rural settings. So as we kind of wrap up here, we also know there's always an advocacy element to these types of issues because the government is one of the largest payers um, of health care in the country. So um, when it comes to, well, and also with, you know, regulation, right? So there might be issues with payment. There might be issues with regulation that need to be addressed. So what what do you think are the changes that need to be made for us as a as a country, but also as a society to better support the crucial arm of the healthcare industry being mental health care, behavioral health care? And what are the advocacy steps that we need to take to move in that direction? Yeah, good question. Big question. <laughs> yeah, if you can answer that, then in two you know, minutes, you got two yeah, minutes. Solve Mark. the world's problems. Ready to right. go. In two minutes. So <laughs> I think um, first of all, JJ and I have talked about this too. Uh, what we need to do is get a really good picture of how the system is working or not working right okay. now. Mm. We we all have stories. We have you know anecdotes about this didn't ha- this happened this didn't happen. I think we need to drill down and find rather than just sort of running around saying this is terrible. Yeah, this is fixable. But we I think we need like a good. Uh, good in, from using the medical model, a good diagnosis of what exactly is broken, what mm-hmm. isn't working. Mm-hmm. And I think that will guide the larger advocacy questions. Mm-hmm. Um, the other piece I would say is, you know, there's a lot of focus around your larger question of adv- advocacy. There's a lot of focus right now on crisis care. You know, the 988 number of secure crisis centers. I think that is a, a, a healthy movement. Mm-hmm. At the same time, if we think about, let, you know, let's be guided in our advocacy by what we would want for our friends, our family, our neighbors, and people we love. Would we want the system just to be good at crisis? I don't think so. I don't want my daughter to have a crisis. Right. I don't want my grandson to have a crisis. I want, I want a world in which we do we have all the tools at our disposal to avoid a crisis. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be, you know, investing our resources in more outpatient prevention. So as trouble begins to brew, you can get right in and not just go to the crisis center when it's bubbling over or yeah. have somebody, a crisis team come to your house when it, now it's out of control to, to, in, to really prioritize investment. And then that goes back to an earlier point about uh, where we where we value and where we are willing to put our money. So prevention, prevention, prevention. 
because it's what we would want for our friends, family, neighbors, and the people that we would love. Yeah. And, and we say often in this business, early detection is early prevention. That's right. And the work that you're doing to detect some of this on, you know, the front end of it is so critical and crucial to have those programs. So uh, we hope our friends in Lansing and Washington will continue to hear uh, the needs that are, you know, certainly conveyed to them from the rural health advocacy uh, and other team members from Michigan Hospital Association, the National Association, et cetera, really to bring this awareness uh, to them and hopefully uh, for those funds to be released uh, for programs like you're operating. So, Mark, here here we started the the uh, podcast with you saying it may only be eight minutes, and here we are, uh, nearly an hour into it, and uh, it we could speak for three more hours uh, because of the passion that's in your voice. Uh, you certainly represent that well, and you know your industry well. And uh, we just want to thank you on behalf of Hillsdale Hospital for the work that you're doing uh, across Michigan to make sure that you receive our patients in our communities. And that I know when I entrust them to you that they're coming back safe and in a better position uh, to manage their lives. And we really appreciate that. And what I appreciate is the fact that you took time out of your busy week to meet with us today and uh, for being a guest. And we hope to have you back here again soon on Rural Health Rising. So thanks for joining us today, Dr. Eastberg. It's been a pleasure uh, and we wish you great success in your project coming up. Uh, if you want to make a donation, I'm going to solicit for you right here. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, please uh, make a donation. If you're listening today and you want to impact some lives, uh, reach out to Pines and uh, they will certainly find a way to, to make sure that they receive that donation. So we would encourage you to do that. Uh, I've already shared with Mark that I'll be making my personal donation and a commitment what we can as an organization as well. Mm-hmm. So thanks for joining us again today. We've appreciated your time. Thank you. It's been an honor to be here. And before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. You know, you're from rural somewhat. Now, you didn't grow up rural. Sounds like you're a California guy. Um, But, you know, we want to know what, since this is Rural Health Rising, all right, this is kind of a fun segment. We want to know what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life. So... That's really easy. So as I mentioned, my grandparents had a ranch in the Santa Clara Valley, and they had apricot trees, walnut trees, plum trees. They had at one point raised chickens. It was it was one of my favorite places. And sometimes when my grandparents would uh, or my parents would go on vacation or to a convention or something, I, my sister and I would get to stay over. Uh, and my grandparents. And one of my favorite memories of all time is waking up in in the bedroom on the ranch, hearing the, the mockingbirds call, uh, smelling my grandparents uh, making coffee, and looking outside, and the, uh, the trees are in bloom, and the mustard, uh, the wild mustard is, uh, it seemed at that time it was like, over my head, but uh, three feet tall. It was the most beautiful morning, uh, you know, to, to wake up to that kind of sense of family and love and beauty and in, in a beautiful rural setting. So that's my rural story. Wow. Can't get any more rural than that, my friend. And, uh, it's, it's amazing to remember those stories of childhood, isn't it? Uh, made many times on the farm. So thanks for joining us again today, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thank you. I'll see you. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. 
And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.